Okay, let's do it. So uh, we wanted last week. We it's, it's very up catching foxes to one. Uh, this happened two weeks ago, and then two just not released an episode last week and didn't tell anyone about it. <laughs> not tell anyone about it. Anyways, uh, we're gonna talk about um, we're just gonna talk about the split between um faith and reason, or like um grace and nature, and all that um good stuff. And uh, we're going to do it through the lens of the book, A Canticle for Leibowitz, uh, which you do not have to have read that book. We're just going to use it as kind of a point of reference. So there will be some spoilers, I guess, for it, but it's not that kind of book. So, yeah. Um, yeah. So yeah. the the Luke also sent out another article oh, yeah. um, yep. that we and posted from, in Patreon from sorry. Simon. What's his name? <laughs> his, name is, uh, his name is um, Simon Saris. Simon Saris, and it was called "In Praise of the Gods," and it was a really interesting. It was a really interesting article. I enjoyed it. It reminded me of a book that I had read a couple years ago, uh, "All Things Shining," where it's like, how do we get the benefit of God without an explicit belief in God? And uh, it was super fascinating to kind of read through how their use of literature and mythos and all this stuff was meant to fill the void of purposelessness in a uh, scientific age. And I liked it and I didn't like it, uh, you know. Um, but this this article that you sent was interesting, very pretentious. Very pretentious, said I of the author. But um, the kind of the main point was we have forsaken empiricism for the sake of rationalism and we've re- reduced our humanity basically to just raw reason and uh and deduction and we are ruining our humanity by doing that well and this is why i think a canticle for Leibowitz is such an important story because it it, it is a classic it's it is a um a, a modern it uh, it is a modern classic some people have called it the best post apocalyptic book to ever be written if not the best then in the top like two or three but i think it's the best um holy moly it is so incredible it's it it's, it's so, phenomenal it's a phenomenal book i have just gone back into individual chapters while i'm driving and just like find the the couple of epic dialogues in there I know. yeah and i just I listen just, to it over and over again i'm like holy crap nothing nothing in nonfiction can compare to this piece like he moves he moves mountains with those oh, yeah. it's awesome yeah and what i think and it really is a classic because I think when you have a when you have a when you have a piece of art that is this good, we tend the way that it, it impacts us tends to be somewhat subjective because of who we are, where yeah. we are in life, and all that's and all that stuff. So there are you know it's 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 kind of like if 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 you have a really good piece of art, the more that you partake in it or the more that you kind of allow it to impact you over time, you see and you notice some different things. Yeah, and you begin to kind of impose your, like, your interpretation of it might not be in alignment with what the author was intending. Yeah, yeah, but but that's... it's okay. Like, that's kind of the postmodern move of, like, yes and. Like, well, that's what you saw, but this is what I see. Yes and, and this is what I see. Yes and. Which I, I don't think is necessarily bad. No, I don't either. I don't either. Yeah, Insofar and, as it goes, yeah, yeah, and it's and it's um, and I think what I saw, what I really see, a canticle for a canticle for Leibowitz being about, is the great issue of our time, which is the split of grace and nature, or um, a faith and reason, and that 
and, and we're going to speak in terms of like I'm a faith and reason, but I think you can apply um, grace and nature to it as well. It's basically what Hans Urban Balthasar is talking about the anima technique. Um, that well, that's what he's referring to. How many of us like have such a hard time with belief because we're forced to, like we view everything through the lens of reason. This book is like kind of really important. Like I think if you're in ministry, if you're practicing, if you're a practice, if you're a practicing Catholic, if you have such a hard time going, yeah, I like the idea of God, but blah 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 blah. Like I think you should read this. What was it that really like? How did it impact you? Okay, yeah. Let me let me just do a quick overview for those who haven't read the book because we don't want to lose people who haven't read it. But... Yeah, 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 yeah. Is there something interfering with your happiness, or is it preventing you from achieving your goals? Well, I started going to therapy probably about maybe four months ago, maybe three months ago, and I just kind of realized that healing is something that the Lord wants us to receive, but healing is always an invitation from God. Quite often, he asks people to, to you know take a step out. We have to take action, and a great way to do that is through a group called BetterHelp. BetterHelp can assess your needs and match you with your own licensed professional therapist, and you can start communicating in under 48 hours. This is not a crisis line. It is not self-help. It is professional counseling done securely online. This service is available for clients worldwide. You can log into your account anytime, and I'm going to send a message to your counselor. You'll get timely and I'm a thoughtful responses. Plus, you can schedule a weekly video or phone obsession so you won't ever have to sit in an uncomfortable waiting room. Those are weird, as with traditional therapy. BetterHelp is committed to facilitating great therapeutic matches so that they make it easy and free to change counselors if you feel feel like you need to. It's more affordable than traditional offline counseling and financial aid is indeed available. BetterHelp, H-E-L-P, wants you to start living a happier life today. You can go to betterhelp.com slash reviews and read some of the testimonials that are posted daily. So this is what we're going to do. We have a special offer for podcast listeners. You get 10% off your first month at betterhelp, H-E-L-P, betterhelp.com slash foxes. You go to slash foxes and you will get 10% off your first month. In fact, so many people have been using BetterHelp that they are recruiting additional counselors in all 50 states. Join over 1 million people taking charge of their mental health with the help of an experienced professional counselor. BetterHelp.com slash foxes. Thank you to BetterHelp for sponsoring this episode of Catching Foxes. So the the book is in three parts. The Canticle, A Canticle for Leibowitz, revolves around the Albertian order of Leib- of St. Leibowitz, which is um, in the uh, – it was written during the Cold War. It was written in the 1950s. And imagine if the Cold War erupts into a hot war and we all go thermonuclear. So 600 years after the Great Flame Deluge, where the whole world is in, in uh, you know covered in nuclear fire, the people who are left are so anti-science – that they kill all the scientists responsible for making nuclear weapons and the politicians. Then Anyone they kill basically. Yeah, yeah, sorry. Yeah, then they right. burn all the books. Then they find people who can read books and they murder them brutally, and they become the know nothings. Right, the whole society rebels against what science hath wrought, which is deformity, radiation poisoning, uh, poisoning of the land, destruction. All the cities are gone. So it plunges. Famine and death. It's just awful. Yeah. So it's not just. The fact of dealing with a nuclear fallout, it's then what do we humans do in a response? We thrust ourselves in a dark age and we clothe ourselves in ignorance. Now, what happens? Well, a nuclear scientist named Leibowitz um, searches for his wife, Emma, can't find her. 
uh, and after you know 20 years or whatever it is decides he's going to enter into a religious order and then eventually he starts his own called the order of saint albert the great after saint albert the great albertus magnus so it's the albertian order of saint Leibowitz. and so he founds this order and their whole purpose is the dedication and preservation of knowledge to take it through the dark ages so that in some future time the knowledge of the ancients would not be lost so that's the that's the whole purpose of the order. So the order are filled they're a bunch of monks and they are filled with a bunch of celibate men who are focused on some of them are scientists but most of them are archivists, are philosophers and theologians. The Catholic Church exists in New Rome, which is somewhere in the United States, you don't really know where. Um this takes place in pretty much southern Texas or the panhandle of Texas. Um, and it revolves around this one monastery that has preserved the memorabilia, the the ancient writings of basically twentieth, early twentieth century uh, scientists, and they're all trying to reconstruct. So they take these, you know, uh, a blueprint for a transistor, and they don't know what it is. They don't know how to how it works or anything like that. But they begin copying it painstakingly and doing what they did with scripture, which is you know making. Uh, you know all the all the beautiful um, in the scriptorums of the monks, right? And they they put cherubs all over it and leaves and all this stuff. Um, but they preserve the wisdom of the ancients. That's the whole point of, of the Albertian order. So book one is six hundred years after the flame deluge, and it follows brother brother Anthony of Utah. It and is the, brother Francis. Is it brother Francis? Yeah, I totally flipped that to Anthony because I go to St. Anthony's. Yes. And then you have 600 years after that in book two, which is called F- so Fiat Homo, Fiat Lux, which revolves around that same <laughs> monastery. What? I thought you said St. I was like, no. Oh, Fiat Lux. Luke. I know. Yeah. I thought you said St. I was like, that's. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, Fiat Lux is Let There Be Light, right? And so the it, it, to me, the second part is so incredible. Yeah. It, it yeah. revolves around the monastery 600 years later. As learning is starting to creep back into society, there are starting to be kingdoms and fiefdoms. The church is still reigning supreme in New Rome, uh, and this Albertian order is about to receive a thon, which is a great professor. So the university system is slowly starting to be reborn, and this secular scholar is going to come and study the memorabilia and see if it's not just a bunch of holy hogwash, if it is, in fact, real science. And then the third act is 600 years after that, when now it's more advanced technologically than we are today. So they have spaceships, they have colonies, they have all this stuff, but they also have war and strife. And, uh, and it is and it's fascinating to see how the order preserves knowledge and wisdom and truth, but also how the modern age of chapter one is really ignorance. Chapter two is really the prideful exaltation of knowledge. And or not chapter, but book. Um, and then book three is uh, here we go again, right? The exaltation that knowledge leads to power. And so you're following this order as they are trying to keep the knowledge of humanity alive. And it is thoroughly Catholic. It yeah, is thoroughly, thoroughly Catholic. Ca- yeah. And it ends. And I mean, this is kind of like a spoiler, but I think it's it's not really because it's not a it's not one of those almost stories where it's like what happens to this guy. It's like you know that this is coming. Yeah. Uh, and it ends with a um, it ends with it, it, like nuclear holocaust, and then the Earth is just is just wasted, and it's kind of the end of man on Earth. 
and they have a group that like goes in goes into 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 space, and it's a great line. You actually, have like Amma, one of the priests. I'm sorry, I think he's brother. He actually like uh, um he Amma dusts the dirt off of his feet, and, he's, and, he's, and he like um says that I'm one line. Where like I think it's in Amma Matthew or something where he says it in Latin, where Christ says, "If the town doesn't accept you, dust off your feet and go to the next one or a house or something like that." So yeah. it's saying that like mankind has once again rejected God and like I'm a, and I'm gonna look at what's happened. Yeah. And, and I, yeah. sorry, sorry. No, 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 no. Go, 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 go. So the reason why we wanted to do this is I listened and read this book. Brandon Vaught recommended it as one of the top five books of all time that you I recommended read. it a while ago too. Yes. <laughs> no, I'm, I, I'm just and, kidding. I'm just kidding. No, no, no. But I had a copy and I didn't know that I had a copy. Um it, someone had donated it to me deceased deacon's library and so i had a handful of fiction books that i hadn't gone through and i saw that and i put it on a shelf and forgot about it so then i was like you know what i'm gonna do this i'm gonna read this book and it was part of the september challenge and i read through it and i'm like oh that was that was a pretty good book i liked it i got like bogged down in the beginning with uh brother brother francis and how like pathetic he is and it's tough too because like you're having to deal with like there you have like the state of texarkana and all this stuff it's like what so you're having to like yeah (laughs) it's weird getting um, used to that stuff and sometimes it it comes across as not hokey's the wrong word but just like a little too far-fetched yeah but i I love it because um, the empire of denver you know, yeah, and I weird. love it because when the when the missiles fall, the world is reshaped. And if you're far enough from the hot zones, civilization can take root again. So in Oklahoma and Texas, on the plains, uh, there arise essentially like a, a, a reborn Indian Native American tribe, the plains people. And then uh, in Texarkana, which is you know a suburb of no town of no city, uh, it's in the middle of nowhere. Um, becomes an empire. And it's funny. I think the reason why Walter Miller used places like Texarkana and Denver in the 1950s was because these were known but not anything important, especially not Texarkana. And that's why it's funny to think of it in the future because the book is very funny at, por- at parts too. Yeah, yeah. But um, the, the the rise of Texarkana as the head the kingdom that becomes the first empire in America over the other kingdoms uh, with people on horseback, right? Like that's what we're talking about. We were bombed back to the stone age. Um, but also there's this other, there's another whole dynamism within the book of the Pope's children. And they're called the Pope's children because the only institution left standing throughout the world is the Catholic church, basically. And the church is the church of the 1950s, right? It's everything's in Latin, right? All these things. Um, and the Pope's children, they're called that because they, they are monstrous deformities because of radiation poisoning. And they're human beings who are born, you know, with multiple heads and all this stuff, multiple limbs. And it's like, a, you know, it's like right out of a horror movie kind of deformities. And so people were like, well, obviously they're not really human, so we can kill them and it'd be a pitiable thing. And it was the Pope who defended the dignity. No, they came from human beings. They have a human soul, though their bodies are deformed. So uh, the pejorative name of the Pope's children, which is really funny because the very last being that you meet is a descendant of the Pope's children. Um, but the, the, this race of, of severely deformed people are all kind of all around the periphery of this novel as non-severely deformed people are dealing with the issues of of this you know some of them are cannibals you know all this stuff and i loved this notion because they call the pope's children because he's defending the dignity of life 
right? So you don't get to kill them as babies if they're born deformed because they're human. They're worthy of life. They don't have animal souls. They have rational souls. And, um, and uh, towards the end, the, there's this whole, in the third book, there's this whole idea of the radiation sickness and fallout, essentially the state creating sanctioned euthanasia. And who is opposing it but, you know, the church. And it's opposing it in the face of all of this pain and suffering and all of this stuff. I found that so moving mm-hmm. um, in both instances. Even though the, you know, well, the brother Francis of Utah ends up being killed by these monstrosities, right? Mm-hmm. And they want to eat him and all that stuff. Um there is, I don't know, it's so fascinating that in the end, a, a one of these Pope's children, this woman who has a second head that every so often will open its eyes and smile, um, that woman dies and that second head is the, uh, the Immaculate Conception. She is the new race of post-humans who are sinless. Yeah, yeah. So that's, that's the, I don't, the first time... I on the Reddit, I had the hardest part with that at the end. I was like, "What?" I did <laughs> not understand it. I did yeah, not it, understand it. It, it takes yeah. a couple times to think, like, like, okay, so this is, but I don't want to get too much. In, so, like, why? I think this is so important. Again, I want to. So, let me start with this. I love Matt Fred. I love what Matt Fred is doing with, uh, with Pine with Aquinas because I think it's very important to like look at the intellectual tradition of your church and and of and like like we have this knowledge that we just tend to ignore and it is so important that we do not do that it's so important that we use our reason i think that this stuff is good i'm i'm i there's things i'm going to say they're going to are going to come across like i am anti reason i'm not but this book, why this is so important is I think it shows the inherent um, – I this is where we are going. I have no doubt about this. Like I, I'm so convinced now, especially after reading this, that we – this the world will end in a nuclear holocaust or something. Like, I think something like this will – and I don't think – I don't know if this will happen in our lifetimes. I pray to God that it does not. I don't think it's going to happen in our – you know, on the children's um, lifetime. But we have enough on um, nuclear um, – uh, we have enough on um, the nuclear weapons to blow the world up like 12 times over or something like that. Yeah, 80 times. 80 times at the height of the Cold War. <laughs> like, yeah, like, like we can, and like, think of all the genetic engineering that we can do now, all this stuff where it's like the just real disregard. We have just like, think of all the embryonic, like all the human, like uh, yeah. there was a child who was just born who was conceived in 1992, whose embryo was basically, it was like in like an ice thing for, you know, almost like 30 years. And so you have you have a sorry not born but you have a child that was conceived in ninety two who's being born in two thousand twenty. Where do you think this leads? You know, like and then that's and that's a, that's what really does concern me. And when I and why I love this guy's article, the one on Simon Sarris articles because he basically um talks about how one and I again I am not against a apologetics at all but he brings up a really interesting point where he says why do we keep trying to fit the faith into reason why do we keep trying to make it fit into this box when it can't it all now there are things about it that absolutely can there are i mean there are 
it seems almost an infinite amount that can't. F- not sure. I mean, I, there, there is a sh- crap ton that can fit <laughs> that can be understood. <laughs> you know, but yeah. uh, um, one of the most interesting parts of that of the book a Canticle for Leibowitz is the character of the Wanderer, who you don't ever really know who who he is, but he's this old man who's in each of the parts, each of the each each yeah. of the stories. He's there, and it's implied that he's at least as old as the time of Christ. He might be Lazarus, and what's so interesting is that. Th- it's because because of because of reason people can't believe it or they don't under they don't un, they don't understand how can this person be alive it doesn't make it doesn't make sense but who can understand it are the saints of of these of the story the people who go well why like I, and, and and they're not and they're not I'm trying to say that he is this old person they're just I'm saying I don't want to um like, so like our, there's something to what he's saying. Yes, our faith implies miracles, right? Like our our faith, there are parts of our faith that don't make sense. And we try to make our faith make sense and we try to put it into this box that it can't go into. This is why your strategies for your parishes don't work. And I'm not saying that you shouldn't have a plan or have things that you're going to do, but it tends, like, we start with um, a faith and then we, and then we move in, in, to reason and i don't think that that's i I think this is what the book is warning against because what happens is quite often because we move in to reason we think this is then going to take care of all of our problems but it's actually when when you take it out of its proper place which is you know to try to keep man on the relatively safe to try to keep things relatively unstable you got to choose how who's going to work where who's who's going to do what you, you have to know things in order to be a doctor like there are things that we need to like again reason is good but when it's when it becomes just you know pretty much only reason it leads to a lot of really bad stuff and i think this is a major issue with with the catholic church right now because we start from a place of faith and then we say now what's like what is your strategy what are what are you going to do and that's fine but I actually think it's you're kind of I'm missing the last part it's almost like I, I really think we need to start with faith move it then move into reason at the service of faith because what's the most interesting thing about um about about a canticle for Leibowitz, which really hit me the, as I was going through it. There are, there are a couple of other things as well. Was how much um so the abbot in in the first in uh, the first um part the first book if you will he is he basically just wants to use um he wants to use reason out of um fear because he's scared that they think the old man might be Saint Leibowitz. And he says there's been orders who have been shut down, who have tried to have their founders become like saints, and when they when, when they aren't like when they um, aren't canonized, it becomes the death of the order, pretty much. Then no one wants to join, and he's scared that that people are going to think this was really Saint Leibowitz, and when it's found out that it's not, because how could that be possible? It would ruin blessed like Leibowitz's chance for canonization, which would then hurt. The order, so it's because of his reason it brings about this um, like this um, fear that he can't see the possibility that there could be something miraculous going on here, 
And that really hit me because I think that's the thing that scares me about the way that we approach so much in the churches. We become so based in reason that we cannot see what God is doing or what God is calling us to. So when you say reason, you mean uh, almost like unaided human reason, like unaided by yes. God's faith. Like yes. yes. My own powers. My I think own it, I think Yes. I think nature. it can come from a place. And this is, it's tough because you need goals. You need, like, you need to have a thing that you're doing and working on because if not, it leads to um, a cedia and some really horrible, like you, like it's good to have goals. It's, it's, it's really good to have like some type of plan. There is like a danger in one Saying this is how th- this is how we're going to do things, and this is how it's going to be, and that's it. Good ministry will abandon everything you're doing if you think that the Lord is calling you to do so. Doesn't matter how much money you have raised; it doesn't really matter how much stuff you have planned. It doesn't matter if you know this is where the Holy Spirit is moving. You have to follow. You have to respond. And this is this is like what um, Benedict was talking about in the one quote that I sent to you and Matt, where he's like, you know, we basically um, were unable to really um, see um, what the Holy Spirit is doing because we have tried to, we've created this man-made thing. And like, we're children of the enlightenment. We come out of this whole, you know, we are in this post-Christian age that has long ago let go of faith. That's why we live in an, an, an agnostic or borderline anti, I mean, really now um, atheistic culture. And that creeps into everything that we do. That's why I love that one article that we got from, uh, f- uh, f- you know, that we uh, that we got from like Father Harrison when the guy t- talked about like, what if Christ is calling us to do things that are going to hurt the GDP? Like, what if Christ is calling you to do a thing that could hurt your ministry in the eyes of your boss, in the eyes of others, in the eyes of you know the world? Yeah. What if you have to get fired for the glory of God? Yeah. Like, like, and that's what I think, that's what I, why I think a canticle for Amal um, Leibowitz is so important because it's saying like, look, um, you know how, how at the end he talks about like the, the um, all, you have all of the meta science who are still trying to chase Eden. Because they think Eden is still possible. Like, like in their mind, they don't want to admit it, but they think Eden is still... No, he just said this line. I, I must have listened to it five times driving around. Um, because the audible version of this is masterful. I recommend everyone to get it. Um, but the, the phrase is, so the man, Lucifer, has fallen. Nuclear missiles have been fired. Not necessarily, you know, maybe it was a test. Maybe it was this. But you're not allowed to use nuclear weapons. Because, you know, 3,000 years ago, they wiped out almost all the face of the earth. So we're not going to do that again. Well, Lucifer has fallen. The Vatican understands. Lucifer has fallen. Lucifer has fallen. And so this man is thinking, like, why are we doing this again? Why, why the abbot of the thing, why are we doing this again? Why are we going to annihilate ourselves again? And he said, because in our hubris, we're constantly trying to build Edens. And mm-hmm. probably the reason why we get, and this is my paraphrase, we're getting so angry and kill ourselves over it is because we're so close to it, but we can never get there. So in our rage, we tear the whole thing down. And, you know, that's the, um, there's a great poem from a James Russell Lowell on St. Michael called St. Michael the Weigher. And you have the, these two scales. And then it says, in one scale, I saw him place all the glories of our race. Right, so he's gently placing all of our glories 
uh, cups that lit, Belshazzar's feast, gems the wonders of the east, Kabbalah's scepter, Caesar's sword, many a poet's golden word, many a skill in science vain to make men as gods again. Uh, and in the other scale he threw, things regardless, outcast few, martyr ash, arena sand, of St. Francis's quarter strand, disillusions and despairs of young saints with grief-grade hairs, right? So in the scale, he has the glories of our humanity. And I love that phrase of science to make men as gods again, right? And that's kind of the thrust of this book is mm-hmm. um, instead of turning to Christ to heal the inner man, I will construct ever new Enoshes, you know, in the book of Genesis, who is the one that builds the first city? Who is the father of culture? Who is the father of industry? Who is the, it's Cain and his children. Cain builds the first city and he names it after his son, which means consecration, but he's not building to the consecration of God. It's not a sacred place. It's to the consecration of his own hands, of the works of his own hands. And that's really in, in this huge way, Original sin is not eradicated by baptism, right? So even Christians are doing horrible things to other Christians, right? Original sin is not eradicated in the sense of the fall, in the sense of our tendency to sin and all this stuff. And so they keep coming back to this notion of like, here on this side of heaven, we can't create Eden. We can't go back to the garden, right? But we keep wanting to, and we think technology and knowledge will lead the way. Now, what prompted me and you having this conversation, and this is the part, Luke, when we rah, like barely talked about it, I didn't want to say. I saved it for the show. So you had a National Review of Books podcast that you had listened to, mm-hmm. and they covered this, and uh, you know, two or three weeks ago on the show, I said, oh, I, it, was, it was my first-ish reading of the book, and I said, it's Thomism on Parade, and you go, hmm where that you do that annoying like I know something you don't know but I'm not going to say it yeah. and I'm like what it is like like literally the philosophy and theology of the book is written from a very strong Thomistic theology perspective very very strong mm-hmm. so yep. it's funny it's like we we were both right because the guy so you you bought me a subscription to the National Review because that podcast was put behind a paywall and, and I download the episode. Which is so worth it. I, <laughs> oh my gosh. Now, review, get your head out of your ass. No Holy kidding. crap. Yeah, no kidding. Oh, my gosh. And the problem was that sucked was the, the summary of the book, which is two-thirds of the, of the interview, yeah. is terrible and boring. The last five minutes are fascinating. The last five <laughs> yeah. minutes. And, the, and, I, and I'll tell you what, Luke. When I listened to that, I was mad at you because <laughs> you ruined my book for me. And when you started off by saying, you know, it's great art because of so many different interpretations of it, you know, the yeah. interpretation that the guy started off with, this is this great book of Catholic apologetics and, you know, all this stuff. That's how it was told to me. Yeah. That's how every Catholic reviewer who has read the book says it. But then the guy in the last five minutes says, uh, well, you know, that wasn't actually now Walter uh, Miller was uh, practicing Catholic at the time, but he was kind of on his way out of the faith. And about 10 years later, he pens this comment that says, essentially, the problem with Western civilization is that we have divinized logos, right? We have divinized reason, the ratiocination of the human mind, right? Our ability to reason, we divinized it, and that's what's destroying us. Now, he wrote that in 19 – he probably wrote that phrase in like 1963 or something, I mean, but this is the height of the Cold War when he penned the book. 
It's the height of kids doing get under your desk, nuclear bombs are dropping drills in school. And you have to understand where he's coming from, too. So he, like, so he um, killed himself in, I think, on 97. It's really horrible. And he, um, especially given, like, the end of that book, um, he was part of the group, I think, in the army that helped destroy um, the Monte Cristo during the Second World War. Uh, yeah, Monte Cassino, yeah. Yeah, sorry. Um, Monte Cristo, gosh. Um, he, he was a count. Uh, (laughs) it's 1130. I'm real tired, but like he was like, he destroyed the, he helped us. I mean, this thing has been destroyed and, and rebuilt countless times, but he helped destroy, you know, like where Aquinas lived and worked and like one of the just most important places on earth. In general, I think. I, I mean, it's it's yeah. it's it's, it's a, it's a definite world heritage site. Absolutely, like. yeah. I mean, take out its importance to the Catholic Church. I mean, it is one of the reasons why the West is the West is because of this place. Yeah. Um, or just no, like why the world is like why we have Christianity yeah. still is because of this place. Because of the monastery, and he helped us, you know, just destroy the whole thing, and it killed him. I mean, I think in the I mean, the end it kind of did. It's very, very yeah. tragic. But like the point of being, so like what they say is like he it's like he's saying like really it's the monks who are at fault for this. Yeah, because they pers- they kept and and pre- and preserved and gave access to this like knowledge base that ultimately results in the end of the world. And he's and his argument is like there's when you put that much stock in reason. It all when that becomes more important than than faith, it always ends in like awfulness. It like, yeah, leads the, to evil. The best part of this book is in, is where that is broken open in dialogue is when the abbot of the monastery in book two goes and goes to visit the old Jew in Benjamin Eleazar in um, in his shack in his hermitage. And he goes out there, and the old Jew is crazy, but you actually, this is where you begin to realize, like, oh, wait, that's the same guy from book one that revealed where Leibowitz's fallout shelter, his wife's fallout shelter was, and told Brother Francis. He's the same guy, and he's talking about, he references Brother Francis in kind of an obscure way, and you're like, wait a second. Oh, no. Oh, wait. This guy really is that old, right? So, um, but as they're talking, they have this thing, and he's like, so this Thon is coming, and Thon is like a dawn of a um, university. And he's like, so this Thon is coming. He might be the one, which means, I guess as the old Jew, he's looking for the Messiah, right? Because the Messiah hasn't come. He's wandering yeah, the earth waiting so for the Messiah. he's looking for the second coming. Yeah. Well, he's looking for the first coming in his No, mind. no, no, no. No, he's looking for th- the second coming. At the So do you remember at the yeah. uh, cl- t- end of the second book? He goes up to the goes up to the thon guy, and he like um, and he yeah. really stares into his eyes. And yeah. the thon guy is supposed to be right around the age of Christ, and he goes, yeah. "Still not him." And then he just walks yeah. away and leaves. I think it's Lazarus. I don't because he referenced that. I, I read a couple of summaries trying to figure out who the hell he was, and they're like, "He's the wandering Jew, the old Jew. He's forced to walk through history to wait for the coming of the Messiah." Um, you know, and because the idea of Lazarus was Lazarus was never a Christian, but though he was raised by Christ, 
So he was doomed to walk the I, earth. I, I'm not saying that like that. I agree that like um, that um Lazarus um wasn't a. I just, I just think for the sake of the no, story. No, no, but that's like the myth that he yeah, might yeah, be pulling yeah. from. I think because I, I, I think that's why he's looking at his eyes is because he's he has stared into the eyes of Christ before. Mm, mm, very because cool. because he very can't. Cool. I, I think they're implying that because he was resurrected, he can't die. Yeah, it's really funny though because he's saying. That makes sense. He's saying uh, when he's talking with the the abbot, he's like, oh, yeah, Leibowitz, he was one of my tribe, and he left, <laughs> you know, to join you. Benjamin smirked. I have no sympathy for you. The books you stored away may be hoary with age, but they were written by children of the world, and they'll be taken from you by children of the world, and you had no business meddling with them in the first place. Ah, now you care to prophesy. Not at all. Soon the sun will set. Is that prophecy? No, it's merely an assertion of faith in the consistency of events. The children of the world are consistent, too. So I say they will soak up everything you can offer, take your job away from you, and then denounce you as a decrepit wreck. Finally, they'll ignore you entirely. It's your own fault. The book I gave you should have been enough for you. Now you'll just have to take the consequences for your meddling. He had spoken flippantly, but his prediction seemed uncomfortably close to Don Paolo's fears. The priest's countenance saddened. Um, but they have these this interesting common, uh, conversation, but he says, you know, this thawne is coming, this great man. Uh, it's a shame he won't pass by so I can see him. Eventually he goes to the monastery to see him. But they have this dialogue where he's like, you know they're going to take everything from you. And he's like, well, what do you mean? You know, we, No, our job is to preserve knowledge, to give it to the world. And he's like, and the world will take it and it'll take everything else. Very well. Forget that I asked it. But let's hope this thorn will be on our side and not with the others this time. Others, Benjamin? Manassas, Cyrus, Nebuchadrezzar, Pharaoh, Caesar, Hannigan II. Need I go on? Samuel warned us against them, then gave us one. When they have a few wise men shackled nearby to counsel them, they become more dangerous than ever. And then uh, as the thorn is talking and, and things are being explained, in walks the irreverent poet, Saint Poet. Right, and this poet is this wandering poet troubadour character. A clear, I'm catching a foxes fan. <laughs> yeah, yes, absolutely. With a glass eye that he pops out and to scare and shock problem. people. Yeah, in a drinking problem. Yeah, clearly. <laughs> yeah, and he, there's this scene where he is challenging the thawne in this ironic, like just pelting him with all this because he knows why the thawne is there. The thawne is there to uh, eventually. Hannigan, the, the king of Texarkana, is going to come and destroy the monastery or occupy it or something. And his, his, the army that kind of, uh, or the military men that accompanied the Thon are there taking measurements and, you know, the walls and all this stuff. The poet knows what's happening. And he's like, you know, what do we want to do? He's, he had this, what was it, a blue goat or something? And he talked about making him, uh, he's like, oh, setting him on the throne. But the need is obvious, said the poet. They say you are writing equations that will one day remake the world. They say a new light is dawning. If there's to be a light, then somebody will have to be blamed for the darkness that's past. Ah, thence the goat. Fontadio glanced at the abbot. A sickly jest. Is it the best he can do? You'll notice he's unemployed. Let us talk of something sensible. No, 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 objected the poet. You mistake my meaning, your brilliance. The goat is to be enshrined and honored, not blamed. Crown him with the crown St. Leibowitz sent you, and thank him for the light that's rising. 
Then blame Lebowitz and drive him into the desert. That way you won't have to wear the second crown. The one with thorns. Responsibility is called. The poet's hostility had broken out into the open, and he was no longer trying to seem humorous. The thorn gazed at him icily. The abbot's heel wavered again over the poet's toe, and again had reluctant mercy on it. And when, said the poet, your patron's army comes to seize this abbey, the goat can be placed in the courtyard and taught to bleat, There's been nobody here but me, nobody here but me, whenever a stranger comes by. That's what the thorn represents. They're going to blame all of you as a bunch of ignorant, superstitious idiots, and you don't, even though you have spent your whole life in service of the world, they're going to crucify you and they'll worship a goat rather than Christ because, uh, so that they can blame you for it. Right. And, uh, and, and it's fascinating because that's exactly what the Thon does. The last dialogue he has with the abbot, he's like, these memorabilia belong in a place where they can be used and benefit people. And he's like, it's always been here. It's always been for people. You can always come here. And it's like, no, in more capable hands. I, I didn't mean that, but that's what I mean. You know, and it's fascinating because that's exactly what happens. It's exactly what happens. That dialogue with the poet Benjamin Eleazar and then with the abbot in book two, all, all revolving around the Thon, who's kind of like the Albert Einstein. He's just one figure who's so smart and so brilliant, and he's treading lightly with religion because of his speculation. You can't hamper my speculation. How dare you? And it's just, it's so powerful. It really is to, to, to walk the line where we reduce all of, all of reason. So my issue with what you said was, I think we're reducing the beautiful gift of reason to one mode of reason, which is kind of what that article makes the distinction between empiricism yeah, and rationalism. Yeah, yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. But it's it's. But I'm not just saying like faith and reason. I think it's a very scient uh, scientism view of the world, where I can reduce the world to a mechanism, then I can learn everything I can about that mechanism, and then I can use it for my own. But power. here's the thing, like, but th- th- this is where. Um, I would kind of push back against that. I don't like that whole scientism th- idea because it, I think it's too narrow. I, I, I don't think it's giving credit to just how much this has penetrated our lives. And our, the very way we think about the world is formed by this. You know, so like what does – um, what does a scientist like? What do they want? They want to like. Okay, so at the very at the very end of the book, they're um, making the argument like, why can't we kill these people? They're going to die. They're going to suffer. They're going to go through horrific pain. It is the right the right thing to do is to is you know to kill them. And what well, my favorite part in that moment was, he said, you know, the doctor said. The only evil I know is pain. And shouldn't we be working to a society where we can make it, you know, take it away at least a little bit? And as the abbot is driving away, he's like, I can't believe these heresies still exist. Did you hear him? Pain is the only evil? Like, I thought we did away with that centuries ago. And I was like, this is, this is incredible. And he even engages in his match where he's yelling, driving in his robot car, going to and from this basically euthanasia, euthanasia place back to the monastery as he's driving back there he's just he's wrestling with this while he has a woman in the car who wants to kill herself and her baby because they have a red ticket and they need to go to the crematorium and just die and uh and it it is amazing to see how he wrestles with this um on his way to go back to the chapel she leaves and she goes to the crematoria 
in order to kill herself and her baby. And he goes back to the monastery as the bombs fall, as the nuclear holocaust part two begins. And I just love the whole, the di- kind of like the war he has within himself. And then all this pain is inflicted on him as the chapel collapses on him. And the skull of Brother Francis with an arrow in its head comes rolling out uh, right over to him. He's like, oh, brother, you're here to keep me company. Um, but uh, he he now has to accept the pain that he asked that woman to accept. And like a priest, I must offer up my pain just like I told her to. Lord Jesus, keep me alive long enough to suffer all the pains that her and her her child did. I I, I mean, even... Even if Walter Miller is painting a a uh, ultimately cynical or pessimistic view of reason and and the divinization of logos and all this stuff, it is it is so. He never departs from a Catholic vision, even when I think he's kind of caricaturizing it. Like the the um, one of the reasons why I stepped away from the book in the beginning was when Brother Francis was such a timid, timid little monk, and it almost seemed like everything you get out of Hollywood when they try to talk about monks and priests and the medieval life, which it's so over the top and stupid, and, oh, I'm a naughty little boy, I'm a sinner, and, you yeah. know, and it's like so over the top ridiculous. <laughs> yeah. But this guy's that, right? Like, oh, here, I'm doing my Lenten penances. Like, and he faints, yeah. I gotta go to confession, yeah. yeah. And, and then his, what is the abbot? The abbot, like, Sprocket. Be- I'm as happy as a little girl. Yeah, but the, the the gruff abbot like constantly like whacks him in the ass with a, <laughs> that's a little weird. Uh, a, 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 yeah. yeah, a stick, and, and the guy has to yell out like "Deo gracias" and all this stuff. Deo gracias. Yeah. Oh, he's so he hurts so good. Uh, irredemptive suffering. Yes, please. Um. <laughs> that's a content everyone's here for. When you made me listen, forced me to listen to that uh, <laughs> National Review thing, and he said it, he blames, like, the nuclear war that we're going to go into on the divinization of the Logos. And this is the – it was still while he was practic- a practicing Catholic, but it was kind of like this eight-year slide out of the church, or how it was a multi-year slide out of the church. Um, I I looked back at a lot of those scenes that made me go, eh, that's kind of weird, and be like, Oh, okay, that's where he's coming from. Like, he really does thread the needle between being authentically Catholic and dipping into a caricature. But I've really felt like between the second and third books, the closer he gets to the end, the less caricature it is. And the the fascinating thing with the the woman who survives as the second head (laughs) that grows up, this ever youthful head, um... She knows how to administer the Eucharist to him and refuses to receive baptism because she doesn't need it. She's now the next creation, the next step. She's sinless. So she's youthful. She has the power of speech. So she has some rationality, but she's not polluted by the sin of, of, the, of the previous sons and daughters of Adam and Eve. And I just found all of that to be deeply deeply catholic like you can only write a book like this from within the thing and it's um and i love it one thing too about it that i think is really interesting is the um like the idol we make out of progress yeah and that we think that okay things are going to it was just so ironic because we have like we don't believe in narrative but um that this idea that like things are going to just continually 
get better. And, and in the book, they say, well, no, there's going to be uh, uh, it's going to be the same as it's always was. It's it's not really on progress. It's just it will be on the sadder or like I'm happier or poorer or richer. That's kind of it. And it, and he really um talks about um how we've replaced this desire for perfection, be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect with a desire for progress. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, and like, this is why I bring up the stuff of, of like, we have to be, like, I don't know like what this looks like. I'm, again, I'm not trying to say that like I'm um, reason is bad. I mean, for crying out loud, like I've worked at schools, I've taught at schools. I hope to do it again. Like, I think that a reason is very good and very important. And Christ grows in like age and wisdom. Like some of the, I mean, I love the profound um, thinkers of of the church, but there's this thing that they don't do, which is they don't um about they they don't. It's at the service of faith, and that really takes a radical conversion to be able to do that. Because if not, because if like it's in, it's just so ingrained in our in our in the very way that like we view life. That uh, I'll be getting um like things are going to get um better and better and better and like we're we're this close to Eden right like what's the great line that um C.S. Lewis has in these in the screw tape um in the screw tape letters we've trained them to think of of the future as 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 um something that only um uh, heroes attain not you know like every man um minute by minute hour hour by hour um. One thing that really changed my ministry was when I was reading Jesus of Nazareth, and you have this line in there where um, you uh, have like Benedict compares the um, old like soothsayers to the to the old prophets in the Bible and to Moses, and he says when you look at the, when you look at the soothsayers, they chase almost safety. They're just trying to like, how do we just, how can we keep getting better? How can we be okay? How can we minimize pain? How can we just make everything okay? Which is what all the scientists and all these people are doing at, at the end of a canticle for, um, at, a, at the end of a canticle when the world is going to hell. And they're just, I'm killing people. And it's like, this is the only thing. What else can we do but this? This is this, this is the merciful thing to do is to murder these people because they're going to die anyway. So their life isn't, isn't really worth living. So in, in Jesus of Nazareth, you um, have like Benedict that says, when you really look at what on the Moses, Christ, and all of the prophets do, they preach a way of life. They preach, they preach conversion to God. They, they like preach repentance and, Actual, you know, like they preach that you can be, that you can change, that you can become like God through God and through being with God. And that quite often means a heck of a lot of dying. And we're so addicted to wanting the church to be safe, to for wanting the church to progress, to flourish. It's not a bad thing. We all want to see the church do well, but like, what if that's not what God wants right now? Like, yes, He wants to bring all, all people to Himself, but what if He doesn't want um, Christendom right right now? We have to think about that, and that has to that has to. All, I am not saying don't have some type of plan for your own um, ministry, or for your own life, or for your own um, family, and how you're going to do stuff. But understand that you're not called to be safe. You're called to a certain way of life, 
And that's the important part. That's what you should be striving for is that way of life and and, and, and try and invite other people along the way to heaven, which is the road to perfection. That means like wanting to be perfect is more important than progress. Mm, mm, I like that. The road to perfection. Yeah. No. I, okay. So let me come at this from uh, like Canticle for Leibowitz using the flame deluge. Like how could you have the world essentially reset itself? The great reset. Um, how can you have the world do that? You know, it's it's a, the apocalypse, right? It's nuclear weapons. How do we get back to the Stone Age? We're going to bomb each other back there. So Walter Mueller come, draw, or Miller, drawing from his Catholic upbringing, right, and, and Catholic ethos, paints a nuclear holocaust, and then what comes next? Well, what happened the first time the world was plunged into the Dark Ages? You have the rise of the Middle Ages. And there there is this fascinating thing that he does and this is part of the thing that I I, um, I knew we were going to have a conversation around some of this faith and reason because of that article that you sent mm-hmm. me and your um, your von Balthasar inspired allergy to Thomism, which is really an insp- allergy to late scholasticism. It's but, not but, Thomism. <laughs> no, that's why I just said you're late. It's actually late scholasticism. But the the thing that um, so I, I was thinking about that in relation to the article and like where might Luke want to go with this conversation. So I pulled out uh, a couple books from my um, from my library on St. Thomas that I love, and I think I'm going to send these two to you for Christmas because I I really do think they're amazing. It's written by the same guy, Joseph Pieper. One's called Scholasticism, and the other one's called Guide to St. Thomas Aquinas. And it's awesome because it puts him it, it, it paints the human story of the Middle Ages and the human story of St. Thomas Aquinas, right? And it's awesome because it's not like it's not it's not a saint book, right? It's not like just praising him. Like every time I talk about Aquinas, um, it, it's this, you get a sense of the man, right, and the times that they lived in. And so that's why I loved it. And to me, I, they should be called Guide to St. Thomas 1 and 2, even though scholasticism tries to avoid talking about Thomas because he has this book kind of next to it. They almost feel like prequel and sequel or, or some interesting way of, of, of looking at it. Um, but the fascinating thing is what he did is he gave us a Dark Ages in a post-apocalyptic hellscape. But the first Dark Ages with the sack of Rome and the rise of the Visigoths, the Visigoths were barbarians, right? They're the know-nothings of book one, right? These are people who don't want to know the truth. They don't. That's kind of like the attitude. If you think about people like St. Augustine, St. Augustine was born in, within the context of the Imperium Romanum. Right, so even though he was totally a Christian, his father was a pagan, and he lived a pagan life for a long time, and his way into Christianity was through the heresy of of uh, Manichaeanism, and so there is this like fascinating dynamic with the the you know you're looking at all of these people like the the Eastern Church fathers who maybe came later than Augustine, but because they were in the eastern part of the empire, their empire never ended like it did in the West with the sacking of Rome. And the rise of the barbarians invading Italy and then settling in Italy. And it's fascinating because Walter Miller uses, I I would say there are two people that Leibowitz and the Albertian order, or there's one person that that he used as the foil for the plot, which is this. There's a man named Cassiodorus. Have you ever heard of that name, Cassiodorus? I don't think so. Yeah, he's not a saint. Um, Maybe he could be, should be, I don't know, but... He was a brilliant man. He was born in Syria. He was a man of the empire. He was super rich, and he was a devout Christian, and his his Catholic love escalated and increased. And they were a handful of 
proto-universities in the East, and he wanted to start one in the West. And this is during the Dark Ages, right? So he go. this is at the kind of like at the beginning when the Visigoths are occupying Rome. So he goes to Rome and he sets up this deal with the Pope to establish the first uh, university in the West and in like the, I don't even know, like the 600s or something. And he goes to establish the first university in the West, like, like a university like you and I would think of today. And he builds it, they establish it, and he imports his library. Now, if you remember, like a book costs like a year's salary, but this man had thousands of books. And he realized the, the turmoil in Rome and all the conflict. He said, because of political instability, Cassiodorus had to leave the university. The university could not withstand the instability of politics. The only place where knowledge could be preserved in these times was the monastery. So Cassiodorus goes into the monastery. He builds a monastery, founds a community. Uh, I think it's called the Vivarium. And there he brings his whole library. And Luke, this was the thing that I thought was so fascinating reading this. He says that his entire library was built and the books that he wrote were almost nothing other than catalogs. Hmm. Like he has this thing called the, the Institutiones and the Institutes. And all it is, it's like, here's a book. This is the things they wrote about. This is why it's important. Here's Seneca. Here's Cicero. Here, And he preserved the wisdom almost like he was a bootlegger or booklegger. He preserved all of this knowledge, and the only place where he could keep it alive was in the monastery. And there was pestilence in the earth, and madness was upon mankind, who stoned the wise together with the powerful, those who remained. But there was in that time a man whose name was Leibowitz, who, in his youth, like the holy Augustine, had loved the wisdom of the world more than the wisdom of God. But now, seeing that great knowledge, while good, had not saved the world, he turned in penance to the Lord. So then men would flock to him. He would train him how to read, how to write. And then he's the one that came up with the scriptorum. And then the Benedictine order took that over and would handwrite books for centuries to preserve the ancient knowledge, right, of, of both the church fathers and scripture, but also of Greek and Roman mm-hmm. and Syrian mm-hmm. writings. And it's so fascinating because as the Dark Ages progresses and you're going towards what would really be the Middle Ages, as you're getting closer to the refounding of towns and the regrowth of cities, it's through the education of the ignorant masses. And it's so fascinating when you read the Guide to St. Thomas Aquinas that I love is because St. Thomas was a, a, was a Lombard. St. Thomas was this Germanic northern race that resettled in Italy. Like that's his, his family heritage. His father... Uh, sacked Monte Cassino. His father sacked it in, in a war with his cousin Frederick the Great in the <laughs> Monte Cristo. <laughs> yeah, he sacked Monte Cristo and then had a Monte Carlo uh, on Tatooine. Um, but <laughs> wait, wait, and and the disabled. <laughs> <laughs> but no, like it's crazy. Like the story, like he was at war with the Pope, and so Thomas Aquinas' dad like sacked this brilliant Benedictine monastery. And then out of like a debt of like, whoopsie, you shouldn't have done that. He sent his son as a five-year-old to Monte Cassino. Whoopsie, you shouldn't have done that. <laughs> yeah, whoopsies. Um, but the coolest thing is it's called the Albertian Order of Leibowitz because St. Albert the Great was Thomas Aquinas's teacher. And Albert was fascinating because he, number one, he outlived his student. He outlived Thomas. He was a firebrand. He walked um, all like from Hungary to Russia, 
um, up and down Germany to France, you know, to the shores of France, basically all over Europe. He walked all in like a five year period when he was the general in charge of the Germanic provinces oh, and, of the Dominican I mean, when order. You have, um, and that's an example. Like when you have um, a reason that's at the service of faith, the sense of like when your priorities are right, when they're, when you are striving for heaven and striving for perfection and you give up any illusion of safety, yeah. reason can conquer mountains. Like and, yeah. and like and then yeah. and that's and, and that's what I'm what I think why I feel so like I mean I was I, I was I was watching Pint with Aquinas the other day and I was just I was loving everything that was on there is him and Father I'm a, uh, him and uh, I'm, him and I'm a Father Pine and I was like I wish I could talk like that I wish I had that type of intellect to be able to like this is so good Matt is so much better than us um, so and I kept better. feeling bad because while I was I'm thinking about it because it was right when I was actually actually almost done with the book on Audible. Um, because I was like, man, I feel like I'm going to come across as some dude who like doesn't like um, a reason, which is ridiculous. Yeah. It's not what I want, but it's so hard to like, yeah. like this is the weeds that is yeah. our existence right now. We have to like, I, I truly believe this is the cross of our, of our times is this sort of, um, disorder. Yeah. And that's why, that's why I think you'll love the book Scholasticism. Because in chapter, so he talks about Boethius as kind of like the beginning of the Dark Ages. Because in 529, you have the imperial decree of the Eastern Roman Emperor shutting down Plato's Academy. And on the same year, so this institution for a thousand years, Plato's Academy, was shut down. And then in 529, the first Benedictine monastery was built. So it's kind of like, uh uh-oh, this is the harbinger of things to come. But first, the Dark Ages. But in this, right, so you got Cassiodorus who's preserving who's preserving the memory of the ancients. And the, and the only way you can do that is in the monastery. But in like chapter two or three of this book, he says, now what you need to understand before anything else is this. Whenever you devote yourself to something, the temptation is rationalism. And this book walks you through how rationalism constantly nips at the heels of people who take their faith seriously. And why it, like, like the ultimate rationalist in, in a certain sense was St. Anselm of Canterbury. St. Anselm, but beca- they said because of his personality, because of his character as a saintly man, you know, he, he had humility and he was able to hold faith and reason. But not because of his methodology. His methodology was, I, let me prove to you the fittingness of the Trinity, the incarnation, the virgin birth. Let, I can prove it to you with reason alone. And so... Anselm is the, 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 the movement of Anselm is the problem in Western theology. The thing was, Anselm was a saint, so his character prevented it from the abuses. And then the author says, and once you don't have that saintly character, once you don't have that perfection, all of a sudden that methodology gets unleashed in all of its damaging ways. And he kind of traces it, how faith and reason in this war, it's not supposed to be a war. But how these compromises and tweaks, how it ends up with reason almost always consuming the faith. Mm-hmm. And, and not just the faith, but mystery. Um, you know, the, the very idea of the, the humanity of our lives. If things get not just reduced to reason, but to deductive logic, and that's it. And you, um, the reason why I tend to say, like, scientism is because it's, it's this, like, the one approach of the scientific method and that which it produces – is the only truth for me, right? So you have people like, I don't, I don't believe anything without evidence. And you look at that and you have someone like St. Albert the Great 
who said, you know, no tradition can, uh, uh, yeah, he has this great line, which basically is like tradition cannot uh, withstand individual experience or something like that. And it sounds much more radical than, than I'm, I'm quoting, but the idea was like human experience matters. Faith matters. Mystery matters. And mm-hmm. people like mm-hmm. Albert and Aquinas and Bonaventure could uphold that. But people like Ab- Peter Abelard and uh, Sider Brybant and all of these other crazy characters, they couldn't. And it ultimately gave us Descartes. And it ultimately gave us Immanuel Kant. And it ultimately gave us the Enlightenment. Where then it was just like, instead of broadening what reason and knowledge and faith can give us, which is the truth, it narrowed all of it to this one thing. And then said the only thing worth knowing is knowing not just this, but in this way. And and that's one of the things that I think is so interesting about that article um, by Simon Sarris is when he talks about how why do all of our stories now involve people being horrible, like doing horrible things, and it doesn't really show on virtue is because you can't explain virtue rationally. Like, and really to understand what actually maturity is. I mean, mean, you can, but like the experience of it. Mm You know, like to actually, like it's we can understand. Oh, this guy, this guy is like this is this guy is really screwed up. This gal is really messed up. Um, you know, I think that's one reason why that show and it's it's kind of funny. Sands all of the sin. Um, his fleabag, uh, the man and the thing with the priest. I guess that's in um season two. Uh, that's horrible. Uh, but uh, like she's a sex addict. And it's really, and you see, her and her life is just like a mess. And you see it, and we can understand it because we can rationalize why she's doing these mm-hmm. these things. It's almost impossible for modern, uh, for like the modern um, person to rationalize virtue because it doesn't make sense. And what do we do when we try to do that? Is we reduce it to not virtues plural, but one virtue, which is duty. Here's a rule, yeah. obey. Yeah. Here's yes. a, that's the modern term. That's the whole point of the book after virtue. It's called that intentionally. You have the virtues. Aristotle, Augustine, Aquinas, the virtues, the art of living. Then you go from the virtues to virtue, duty, obedience, justice, that's it. And then you get the rise of Stoicism when the virtues collapse in Roman and Greek society. You get the rise of Kantianism when virtue collapses in Western society. Right, so you are medieval or modern or Renaissance or whatever. You get the enlightenment of everything's just reduced to duty. And what do we mean by duty? Well, it's duty. It's rule rule following. Whether your rules are from Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative, I, I should do this thing because all people should do this thing, or it's from his arch nemesis, John Stuart Mill's principle of utility. I need to obey this law because it'll make the most people happy most of the time. And so the, these these absolutely antagonistic principles all share the same impetus, which is there's one virtue, there's one thing, which is rule following. And that's not what Christianity is. That's not what Judaism is. That's not what it's supposed mm-hmm. to be. It's supposed to be the art of Christian living, of the sequela Christi, the following of Christ, the, the idea of justice as a virtue within me, not something the government gives me. And then yeah. you take that and you apply it. What comes after virtue? And that's the whole point of the book. What comes after virtue is emotivism. It's the complete breakdown of moral language and meaning, and it's just, it's just emotional sentiment. Oh, I love God. love, legalized gay marriage. Yeah, right. Yeah, like, and, and and that's one thing that's so hard because, like, to at times I feel like to try to 
communicate the faith, though I do think you – like this is why I think it ultimately comes down to witness. Yeah. Because you can't um, – it's actually kind of – it's kind of a thing like Benedict talked about a bit. Like you, you kind of get the – you get the vibe that – I mean, yes, he – I mean, he's – he was the Pope for crying out loud. So he's all about evangelization and the, and um, the proclamation of the gospel. But at the same time, that's not the only way to ev- the only way to evangelize. Mm-hmm. And there's so, and like so much of it is about just people encountering Christian joy and witness. Like there are times when I hear people that I know who maybe are uncomfortable with the faith or think certain things are um, are certain um, things are backwards. Where I just want to say, just come and hang out with like me and all my friends for about an hour. Like just just come hang out with us, and I think you'll kind of see that like they're pretty normal, and it's pretty like there's like a joy here, and there's 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 there there is a goodness to this that I just every time I've wanted to walk away. <clears throat> and to give up on God, I can't because of you. I can't because of John. I can't because of Aaron. I can't because of well, because of John Paul too. I because of these because of my experiences in like in like Austria because I just saw God too much in them, and I can't deny that there's something there. And um, it uh um it we are so addicted to progress and to safety and like that's why I loved it in Canticle for Leibovitz when they talked about just that whole thing about pain and this is why and I, I agree with you about the whole almost um, scientism thing I just think it's so much more um, bigger than yeah. that it's just yeah. this uh, like it is like ingrained in our DNA right now because of the way like, to want to want these things and to view the world that way. Like there are some things, I think this is why, and I, it's, it's kind of funny. Like I love apologetics. I, th- I think it's so interesting, but there's also this part of me that is also like, I think I've always, I, um, not that I don't think it's not important. Again, I'm so sorry, Matt, but I, I, I think it is, but just, there's this thing where I, I just go back to where I just think a little bit about, um, God is bigger than that. We can't fit him into these things, and that's only going to take us so far. And it's, okay, sorry, this really isn't about a Matt Frat and his whole apologetic conference, which which sounded awesome. It is more about um, the thousand and one Catholic podcasts that are out there trying to explain the Catholic faith. How much of that is just because we don't know what else to say, and we want to convince ourselves that this is actually right? You know, in my in my, in my preparation for this episode. I thought, I thought, what will Luke say because of his hmm, hmm, when I was talking about St. Thomas Aquinas? <laughs> and I was, I was expecting a, um, an attack on Thomas insofar it was an overly rationalistic faith. And how, you know, especially if you read the Summa, it sounds like, well, here's your objection, here's the answer, here's the reply, now go run along, I gave you your, you know, <laughs> I solved the problems. And a lot of people say, you know, like, one of the reasons why I left fly, the church. Fly, 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 <laughs> fly, 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 away. Um, no, but, like, they'll say things like, uh, you know, like, uh, life's about the questions, not just having all the answers, you know. Yeah, yeah. God is not an American. <laughs> <laughs> He's an Israeli. Um, <laughs> no, but when, when uh, so in this book on, the guide to St. Thomas, not the scholasticism one, but in the guide to St. Thomas, it was so cool because 
he kind of breaks open the reason why modern readers find Thomas, especially, you know, devout Christians or whatever, might find him rationalistic and painful. It's because Thomas sees himself as a teacher and Augustine understood himself as a writer. Uh, you know, as I write, I understand myself. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He says that in the in the Confessions, and like a, a modern, like atheistic writer said, you know, no one said it better than Augustine. I write, and as I write, I grow, and I grow in my knowledge of myself, or something like that. Well, and that's what I think. Um, Matt Frat is doing such a good job with Pipes with the Quiet. I feel like I'm really trying to not hurt Matt's um, feelings. I'll make <laughs> I sure that too. he that he understands that I'm not. I'm, everyone, please keep listening. I do. It's wonderful, but like he's trying to like people have honest and real and like real questions. And he's providing beautiful answers, him and um, Father Gregory. Um, but it can feel very – and I said this with Father Gregory. We were talking. I said, you know, like when I hear people debate on divine simplicity, it feels so um, – like, I, I mean, I, let me just throw out a stupid term. That's not the one I want. But like rigid and formul, uh, formalistic and formulaic. And it's this this formal structure, tit for tat and bloop, bloop, bloop. But when you read – huh? I always laugh at tit for tat. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but in the in the book, he shows you like Thomas loved dialogue, the dialectic of philosophy, and so that's embedded in all that he did. He loved the the questionis disputate, where these huge disputes where you go back and forth. It was like his favorite thing to do was to be in front of a crowd of scholars who are more reputable than him and just go into this debate. But the debate was incredibly structured. And it was all based on the line. Like, you were not allowed to talk until you verbally summarize in your own words what the person just said. And if you did not do an accurate summary, you left the stage and you weren't allowed to talk that day. Like, and this is what he did even while he was a doctor, professor, all that stuff, you know, from student onward. And it's so fascinating because the style that he wrote was to be as clear and as drained away from his own personality as possible and not to be original, right? But the problem is we moderns love an Augustine because he was fiery and he poured himself into the writings and he draws you in with the, with the I mean, St. Augustine, if you could read him in the Latin, he knew how to turn phrases. And Aquinas, the cool thing about Aquinas is he never used technical words. He only used words in their general meaning. Like, he didn't care about etymologies. Like, oh, well, this word means this, and it was used by the ancient Greeks because of blah, blah, blah. He's like, this is how people use the word similar, and this is how you hear it today. This is the, you know, and it was really fascinating to hear, like, he spoke with the words to teach the most amount of people. The problem is we don't live Mm. within that context, and so mm-hmm. when we pick it up, it was supposed to be a manual for beginners, and we pick it up, and the style is so formal that it's like, oh, gosh, this guy is so rationalistic. But, in fact, it was other people who were rationalistic, and he said, uh, and I'll just end here, but the scholastic part, uh, or the book Scholasticism says, the number one way you combat rationalism in the Middle Ages to let reason, to prevent reason from just subsuming faith into itself was the weirdest thing that happened in the history of Western civilization, which is one man, Dionysus the Oropagite. Have you ever heard of him? Yes, I have, actually. Yeah, he is known as Pseudo-Dionysus mm-hmm. because he was like a, an, a, like a ninth century Syrian monk who said he was a convert, Dionysus, from the Oropagite, um, from the Oropagus, where St. Paul preached. And all these people bought into his like 10 or 12 books because they thought he was a companion of St. Paul. 
Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. all these people read it, but he was, you know, he was a Syrian monk. No one knows why he did it. Some people think it was a fraud. Most people think, nah, yeah. not really. He, he was pu- publishing pseudonymously. But where have I, where have I heard of this before? I, I absolutely remember this. Yeah, I, I, we talked about it a little bit. Um, I think maybe when we had Brian Jones on, like episode yeah. thirty-two. Okay, but, but his whole thing is called the Via Negativa, right? The negative way, the way of negation. I don't know who God is. I can't say. I cannot know who God is. I can only know what God is not. And Pope Benedict, in Introduction to Christianity, nails it in in this way. Like he said, we can only apprehend God; we cannot comprehend God. And the human intellect enters into the height of arrogance when it thinks it can comprehend the infinite. And Ooh, it's only Benedict when Benedict is such a gift; he really is. And of course, he's quoting Aquinas when he says that. But the only—I'm <laughs> uh, just kidding. But the only way that we can respect that is if we have that. If the theologian has that via negativa. I can't say what God is. My brain can't grasp the wholeness of who God is. So I'm not even going to pretend to do that. All I can do is receive. And so when I saw that paragraph, because when Joseph Pieper writes a table of contents, each chapter is just a Roman numeral, but then he has a paragraph of explainer text that summarizes what he talks about. And it like one of it was like, the mode of the true theologian is receptivity. And I was like, Luke is going to drink this down. <laughs> but that's the thing. It's like reality has a dignity in itself. And the only way you can know anything is if you're receptive, not aggressive. And so much of modern rationalization is, and that's what I loved about that article, is the, the rational mind wants to dominate and impose, whereas the, his distinction was the empirical mind, empiricism is through the senses, which is what Aquinas would say. And so the idea is like, I have to experience and sense the thing in, before I know the thing. And so it's this coming to be of like a being with the res, the thing itself, and letting the thing itself communicate itself to me. And so he says, like, you know, Thomas Aquinas's understanding of truth is the adequation of an object with my mind. He said, but what comes before truth? Truth is secondary. What's primary? The being, right? The thing itself, right? Real existence, reality always mm-hmm. comes first. And the only way you can know reality is if you shut up, humble yourself, and admit that you can't know reality unless you receive it. And that gets lost when we mechanize or when we put away the, the part of faith and when we, we go full bore into the anima technica vacua or rationalism yeah, or yeah. scientism. And that's the path of Descartes. I'm a mathematicized philosophy and theology and life and everything. And then everything boom. has its own little thing. And yeah. it can be understood in its own little – and that – it's so interesting how much in the third part of A Canticle for Leibowitz, the third book or whatever – um, they talk about tools and man and like his techne and stuff. And I'm like, holy, like, because yeah. what happens is when we get obsessed with that stuff, and this is the danger of being obsessed with Apple and all these other things. Yeah. Yay, though, I love it. It can pull us away from reality, which is God. Like, God is, that's where we find reality is when we are in God and with and with God. We see the world for how it really is and we're able to experience the world for how it really is. And all of it, that's is why, like, the church of, like, this is why it's good to drink and it's good to eat. It's good to do all those things, but why it's bad to do it in, you know, excess. And we see the dangers of it because, it, like, all this different stuff. And when we don't care about those those things, everything just gets reduced to biology and you know, biology and chemistry and just basic psychology and we're just like a bunch of neurons, it it feels hollow because it's fake. Yeah. 
Um, speaking of after virtue. Yes, sir. Hold on a second. Hold, please. Yes, sir. Hold, please. Luke's got news, people. Luke's got news. And I am jealous with a capital jelly. So, someone got into grad school. Someone got into grad school at Notre Dame. I'm so pissed off. I am so pissed off. I got kids. I got kids. I can't live your life. I want your life. Gosh, to be at Notre Dame. Uh, I know. I'll be spending 10 weeks there. And what are you doing? Uh, then, what are you getting? What so degree are you I'm, going for? I'm getting an executive on master's in nonprofit administration at Notre Dame. So we had uh, we did an, we did an interview that we still haven't aired yet uh, with this uh, gr- with this great uh, uh, great priest friend of ours. Um, his name is uh, his name is like Father Curtis, and uh, he was talking about how I don't know if he's in that exact program. I forget, but um, and it I was like, man, I really have always because I've been wanting to do. They have a couple things kind of uh, kind of like this, and I've been wanting to do one for a while. And um, I and I have and I um, had a colleague who had actually uh, just gotten her undergrad uh, there, and I was like, you know what, I'm gonna t- I'm gonna talk to Rachel and see if she thinks that I could do this. And she didn't, and I so I um, told her, and she was like, oh my gosh, you should absolutely apply. And so I did, and I got in and got a scholarship for like half of it. That's got awesome, a man. Merit fellowship, so. Yeah, I'm, I'll be starting um, in. Uh, I'll be taking probably four weeks uh, starting in uh, mid June. That's so, so cool, man! And Alistair McIntyre. Yeah. That's why Luke said that. Alistair McIntyre, oh, yeah, the author of After Virtue, is is a professor there. Uh, retired, but still he teaches. I think yeah. he teaches one class. And I'll still do the podcast and stuff, so it's fine. I'm just gonna have to really. I'm probably gonna have to give up all my social media and everything else, but work, school, and uh, Aaron and Everly. Mm. So, work school, Aaron Everly Gomer. Work school, <laughs> <laughs> man. I, and all I have in my life to share with you, all of my updates are: uh, I uh, sat in on a parish council meeting today for the first time since I've been a director. Oh, isn't that great? Uh, and Luke, I, I literally fifteen times during our conversation wanted to share it with you because the document that they wanted to work on was a pastoral plan for the next five years. And the very first thing on the document is a SWOT analysis. <laughs> so the Holy spirit really knows how to work through a good SWOT analysis. <laughs> so I said, um, I said, Hey, how about this? How about instead you guys all come to the church and we will talk about the gospel, the church, the mission of the Holy Spirit, and the life of prayer and holiness. And we'll spend like a month going through all of this stuff. And then at the end, we all pray and pray and pray for one thing to discern for the parish. Instead of writing a five-year pastoral plan, Maybe we try to figure out what should you, as a group of people formed and framed for Christ, are going to think about in a very narrow thing instead of, 
here's a five-year plan. Because I'm going to tell you, I've never seen a five-year plan make it past year one. And I was a part of a church that spent a couple hundred thousand dollars flying consultants out from Chicago. And literally, I'm halfway through the meeting and the like you could tell not a single person in that room was going to do anything in the in the recommendations yeah. it's um it's tough because like uh really it's the prayer and the discernment and the listening and the, the receptivity and the receptivity that needs to come first because again like what if the lord is calling you to a thing that's going to does it fit into the yeah. confines of a swat of the house? But then you can use your reason and use that stuff. Yeah. Okay, this is where we think God is my, my calling op- us. My opening line was, we can do a survey. Uh, you guys can sit and talk to each other about, like, where you see low-hanging fruit. And I said, but here's the danger, that we sit here and come up with really good plans about what we think the people want and completely ignore what God needs, what God wants for us. And by ignoring that, it could be very, very dangerous. And they all were like, huh, yeah, 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 what we need and not just what we want, because what we want may not be what God wants. Yeah, no, I think I can get behind that. Wow, okay, yeah, let's, okay, wow, okay, yeah, whoa. We almost made a really big mistake there, and I'm like, Luke's texts are finally getting through. (laughs) Pay him hundreds of thousands of dollars. All right, man. Well, yeah. let's wrap this show up. Um, we got three more episodes. Thanks to our sponsor at BetterHelp.com, BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Y'all have been amazing. Thank you so much. Pe- people, it is the holiday season. It is rough on a lot of y'all. Call BetterHelp.com. Go to BetterHelp.com and check out their resources. If you hit up, hit up uh, BetterHelp.com slash Foxes, we can get you a discount. But please do not hesitate. Yeah, we yeah. need to be healthy here. Yes, especially right right now. So, 